respect for God's Word and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58 this morning as we bring to conclusion uh, Paul's magnum opus on the resurrection of the body. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 50, here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. I say this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. In the Lord. May God add his rich blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let us ask for his help to understand. Almighty God, as if you had made known your law and have also added your gospel in which you call us to service and invite us to partake of your grace, a grant that we may not have deaf ears, either to your commands or to your promises. But as we hear your word proclaimed, work in us to render us submissive to you, that we may devote our whole lives to your service in joy and adoration and thanksgiving for your promises in Jesus Christ. Hear us for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. It was Polonius, a figure in William Shakespeare's Hamlet, who spoke those famous words, Brevity is the soul of wit. Brevity is the soul of wit, and those words have become something of a proverb in the English language. And the basic thought of that is that good communication, the best kind of communication, the most compelling communication, is that kind of speaking and writing which is communicated with brevity. In other words, the capacity to take a huge idea, to boil it down, to comprehend it, and then to communicate it in simple, clear, terse sentences. Now it's uh, it's, it's marvelous here how the Apostle Paul, as he winds down his argument for the bodily resurrection, as he sums it up, as he grasps hold of the various threads and strands of his argument in this very profound chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, that he is able to summarize 
basically what he has been saying as he's argued for the resurrection. And you can summarize his argument around three distinct words. There is transformation, there is victory, and there is admonition. There is transformation, there is victory, and there is, tra- and there is admonition. There is the brevity, and that is the soul of this compelling argument. And the first thing that the Apostle Paul wants to stick and to fix in our mind this morning is that resurrection means transformation. Resurrection means bodily transformation. Let me show you where I'm getting this particular point. Look with me at verse 50, where the Apostle Paul says... Now I say this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We want to begin with those words where the Apostle Paul says, now I say this, because what he is doing here is reaching back to what he has said, most particularly in verses 35 through 49, and he's bringing them down to our level and he's summing up what he meant to say there. And what he is saying is that there is going to be total and complete bodily transformation. Let's think about what he was saying, though, in those verses for a moment. You remember in verse 35, he raises two important questions. He says, how are the dead raised and with what kind of a body? Those were the dominant issues in that passage. We said those could have been questions the Corinthians were asking. Those could have been the questions that the opponents in Corinth were asking. Or the Apostle Paul simply as a good pastor, understanding how uh, we grapple with ideas, would say, these are two very important questions we must answer. How are the dead raised and with what body? Now, as you see, Paul walks through uh, the text. He's answering those two questions together. How are the bodies raised? Well, the Apostle Paul says, all you have to do is look at the garden. All you have to do is take a trip out to the farm. There is a seed that is placed into the ground. And then marvelously, by the sovereignty of God and His providence, the seed germinates and it is clothed with a body from God. He says, that's how the dead are raised. The body is placed into the ground, and marvelously and victoriously, God raises that body up in victory and power, and He clothes it with a body. You see, the how also explains the what, though. The what kind of a body is established by the action. God clothes the body as well, giving it the exact body that He wants to give it. Well, then He continues to answer... The questions in verses 44 through 49, answering the how and the what still. The how is that the body will be raised in a manner that is analogous to how God has dealt with the two Adams. Remember now, he told us in verse 45, there are two Adams. There are two men with whom God deals with all humanity. He says the first Adam became a living soul. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see, there's only two people with which God was dealing with. You have the first Adam, and God says, Adam became a living spirit. And the sense of Paul's argument here is that just as that first Adam became a living spirit, you have become a living spirit, because what God did to Adam, first of all, He did to you. 
Natural life was passed on. But there's a second Adam. There is a second Adam, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as in the case of Adam, he became a, uh, he became a living soul, so also in the case of Christ, God did something to him, and he became a life-giving spirit. Well, that's how you're going to be raised. Because Jesus Christ, the last Adam, became life-giving spirit, so that Christ will raise you up by his power. And you will be given the spiritual body. That's the how and the what again. How will it happen? Well, it happens through the very mechanism that God has dealt with humanity. Through Adam 1 and Adam 2. What will the result be? Well, it will be just like happened to Jesus Christ. He became a life-giving spirit. That means uh, he possesses a body that's in perfect conformity and in sync with the Holy Spirit. So also you. Now that's the wonder of the resurrection. That's the substance which Paul is looking at now when he says in verse 50, I say this. You see, he's summing up and he's looking backwards to this whole argument that there will be a spiritual body. And he says, let me rephrase it for you. It means that everyone is going to be transformed. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And you say, what does that mean? And I don't think here that the Apostle Paul is saying that the sinful body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I know that's true. I don't think that's the gist of his point here. I think the gist of his point is to say that the body as constituted right now is not capable of experience kingdom glory. And I think that is true because of the second part of verse 50 where the Apostle says, Nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. You see, the body that we receive from Adam is the natural body. It's a perishable body. And the sense of Scripture, when you come across that phrase perishable, is that this body is weak. It is subject to death and to suffering. That's just how it was constructed. But he says that can't be in this new advancing kingdom glory. That kingdom is characterized by what is imperishable. So you have to have a body that's suitable for that. Therefore, you must have an imperishable body. And so transformation must occur. That's what he says. Flesh and blood cannot. Uh, That, by the way, cannot, in the Greek, is the most powerful way in the Greek language to say, No way, it's impossible. What Paul is saying is it's impossible for you to experience the kingdom of God when it comes in glory apart from a total transformation. You see, the Corinthians needed to have this reinforced in their thinking because they uh, have been tasting of too many ideas and they don't understand uh, just exactly, at least some of them, how it is that uh, we enjoy eternal fellowship with God. It seems that some of them were saying that the best way to enjoy eternal fellowship with God is in a bodiless existence. And Paul says, no! The only way to enjoy eternal fellowship with God in the kingdom of glory is that God raises up the body and He transforms it and makes it suitable to a relationship with God. That's the point of verse 50. And verse 51 enlarges. 
Verse 51 simply enlarges it. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. You see, what Paul has done here is he is saying, it's not just that the dead have to be raised and transformed. He goes on to make the further point that it's a mystery. Not everybody is going to die. That's what he means when he says, we won't all sleep. He's saying that it's going to turn out that not everybody is going to die. And, and I think that that is the hope of every generation of believers. I think we all uh, want to be that last generation that doesn't fall asleep. And that's totally understandable. Because death is frightening. Death is unnatural. It's not natural. God made Adam a living soul. It's not natural that soul and body will be separated. It's just not natural that Jesus Christ even, as He approaches the agony of death, uh, sweats, as it were, great drops of blood. It's a terror to us. And so here is the hope of every uh, believer in every generation of the history of the church. We won't all sleep. But Paul says, here is the point that you need to grasp. Uh, Even if you don't fall asleep, you still have to be transformed. You still have to experience what Paul described in verses 42 through 44. He says, the perishable body must be raised imperishable. The body sown in dishonor, that is the body sown in death, must be raised in glory. The body sown in weakness, it must be raised in power. The natural body must put on the spiritual body. It has to happen for everyone. There has to be transformation. Every hint of the nature and character and essence of life that we have received from Adam must be stripped away from us. And it must be replaced with the newness That is in Jesus. That's your destiny. Everything that you have in the first Adam has to be stripped away and emphatically replaced with the newness that is in Jesus Christ and His victory over death. That means this newness is all about you receiving what is imperishable, what is glorious, what is powerful, and what is spiritual. That has to happen. Paul is being very emphatic here. A transformation must occur both of those who have died and those who are alive. And now we see the timing of it all. The timing of it all in verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. There's the trumpet I started talking to you about at the beginning of our service this morning to help us hear the law correctly. Uh, That blowing of the trumpet signals God calling His people to gather before Him. It is a signal of the power and the majesty and the presence of God coming to us. And what the Apostle Paul says, this transformation will occur on the very moment, the very day, when God blows the trumpet to gather His people together before Him, that they may experience His presence through Jesus. It's going to happen when the trumpet blows. And what that means that the trumpet blows is that Jesus Christ has come again. That word trumpet is used... Uh, in the New Testament, in relationship to the coming of Christ. 
Matthew 24, verses 30-31. Jesus says, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather His elect from the four winds. See that? A coordination of the coming of Jesus Christ and the blowing of the trumpet and the gathering of the elect. The Apostle Paul puts it in a different way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead will rise first. You see, again, he's coordinating the arrival of Jesus Christ personally, the blasting of the trumpet, and as a further detail, when those events happen, that means the dead will be raised and the living will be transformed. It will happen all together. But you see, Paul gives us the timing. The trumpet will blast when Christ returns. And he says that will happen in a moment of time, with the blink of an eye. A moment. You know, the word in the original there, moment, is atom. Not Adam, atom. Which means you can't cut it. That tells you um, uh, the razor-thin margin of time here, where one moment we are living life, and the next, the trumpet is blowing. He said it happens with the blinking of an eye. One minute uh, we're watching TV. One minute we're driving the car down the road. One minute we're at work. One minute we're caught up in the normal activities of life. And the very next moment, almost imperceptibly, we transition into something new with the blasting of the trumpet. And people of God, as you think about this, you will realize that all across the New Testament, this is precisely how the Word of God teaches us to think about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even Jesus Himself tells us, That it will happen. His return will happen in the moment that we don't think it will. Or you could try on a different metaphor. Both Peter and Paul say that the coming of the Lord is going to be like a what? It's going to be like a thief in the night. You see, out of nowhere, Jesus will return in power and glory and personally to come for His people. And the pattern of the New Testament exhortation about the coming of Jesus Christ for His people is that we have to be ready. You see, this warning of the impending coming of the personal Christ is always a call to God's people to be ready. And what does it mean to be ready? It means to be that you're embracing Jesus Christ and a salvation. And you see, it's that call to readiness that gives the urgency to the preaching of the gospel. Over and over again we get this sentiment expressed by the apostles in the New Testament record that now is the day of salvation and there is a coming day when the gospel promises will be taken away and those who haven't heard and those who haven't listened and those who haven't believed have no hope. And so the church is to be caught up with the great task of preaching the gospel and believing the promises. There is the readiness, finding ourselves in Christ. And that's why, people of God, 
you can never put off until tomorrow embracing the promises in Christ. You can never put it off. You can't say, well, you know what, I might just wait till next Sunday. You know what, I might just wait until I've lived my life of sin that I wanted to live. I might just do it when I've done things my way. I might just do it when I'm older in life. I might just done it after I've done all of these other things. When I have accomplished what I wanted to do. Uh, the authority of the word is this. There is urgency now to hear and to respond to the gospel. And so Paul says, Jesus Christ is going to return. There is going to be a blast of a trumpet. It's going to happen with a blink of an eye. And we will be changed. And he is saying to the Corinthians, make sure your faith is in Christ. There's the transformation. There's the first, uh, there's the first word that summarizes Paul's argument for the resurrection. Transformation. It's coming through Jesus. The second thing that the Apostle Paul is saying here is that transformation signals victory. This is amazing. Notice the when-then sequence. Look at verse 54. You have the when-then sequence. I hope your Bibles translate it that way because it is, it is beautiful. You see it? But when this perishable will put on imperishable, this mortal will put on immortality. You see? He's moved from transformation. Remember, it's the mortal putting on immortality. That's the transformation. He says when that happens. And when does that happen? Well, we already know because verse 52 told us it's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns, personally. When the trumpet blows. He says when that happens, what? Then will come about this saying that is written, death is swallowed up. In victory. That's the second point this morning, people of God. Transformation signals Christ's victory. And boy, I'll tell you what, Paul wants to hammer this point. It's victory. I'm sure you notice this in your Bibles. Uh, for instance, in verse 54, it makes it very plain that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament because it is written. But where is it written? He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Where is it written? Well, I hope all of you have a Bible out, and I hope you have a little letter there next to that phrase, because what you will find in your Bible is it says Isaiah 25, 8. Now you can look it up for yourself, and if you are looking this up for yourself this morning, if you go read Isaiah 25, 8, you won't find those words there. Because it does not say that in the Hebrew or the Greek. It does not say that. Literally, the Hebrew says, death is swallowed up forever. And the Greek translation of the Hebrew is that death is swallowed up. I want you to notice that neither in the Hebrew or the Greek does victory appear. But Paul says, it's written, death will be swallowed up in victory. This is Paul's translation under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's saying the clear implication of Isaiah 25.8 is victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. When the body is changed from mortal to immortal, perishable to imperishable, Paul says that means victory. Now, go to the next verse, verse 55. Now, your Bible probably doesn't say that Paul is quoting here. It's probably italicized. It may be in capital letters like it is in mine, the New American Standard. What does Paul say? He says, death, where is your what? Victory. Death, where is your sting? 
Now, if you look in your Bibles, you'll see a little letter there. It'll tell you that Paul is quoting from Hosea 13, 14. See, a second Old Testament text. Well, what's interesting, if you turn back there in your Bibles, you'll see again that victory is not in the passage. It doesn't say that. The Hebrew uh, literally says, death, where is your punishment? It says, death, where is your punishment? Sheol, where is your judgment? What has Paul done? Well, again, Paul has emphasized something here. Death has been conquered. and Victory is in Christ. He has put these texts together in such a way that both of them say one thing. They both say that death has been conquered in victory. That's the proclamation. Paul says this is precisely what it means when transformation occurs. It signals victory for who? Christ. Look at verse 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's uh, three times that word has occurred in a few verses. What does that tell you? When, when, when a writer repeats a word repeatedly, what does that tell you? Well, you don't have to be a, a master rhetorical critic to figure out that they're saying something that's very important. They say this is the idea. Victory. Victory is here. But, you know what, people of God? There's an incredible jolt that happens between verse 55 and verse 56. I I wonder if you see it. Look in your Bible. Please, see this. Paul has talked about victory in verse 54. He's talked about victory in verse 55. And then verse 56, what does he say? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. And then verse 57, he goes on to talk about victory. In other words, right in the middle of the discussion of the proclamation of victory, the Apostle Paul takes a detour, he takes a turn, and he says, this thing of death is sin. He's back to death. He's talking about how bad and ugly and horrible and powerful it is. You know what, people of God? Just as we are at the moment, we're hearing the proclamation of victory through Jesus. Just at the moment when we're all jumping down the, up and down on the sofa celebrating the victory. Paul says, stop. You need to think about this. That's, a, that's amazing. Just as he tells you a victory, 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 victory. And we're all rejoicing and we're all jumping up and down. We're all thrilled with joy. He says, stop and think about it though. You need to see something. Death is ugly. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. What does he mean? It seems that just at the moment where Paul is reflecting on victory over death, he he can't help but say... (laughs) Here's how, it all came, here's how it all came to be. Here's how it is that death has this stinger. He says, sin gave death its sting. Sin gave death its fatal blow. And Paul is just simply doing what he's done all throughout chapter 15. He's returning to the garden. 
He's returning right back to the Garden of Eden with Adam, and he's returning to that fundamental uh, command of God. He says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you do, you will what? You will die. You see, and Paul is reflecting on that now in view of Genesis chapter 3. Adam ate, and Adam died. And sin has a fatal sting. But he adds one more thing here. He goes on to say that the power of sin, where it gets this stinger from, this fatal stinger, is what? The law. He says the reason why sin is given this incredible power to fatally sting us over and over and over again is because of the law. It's interesting how Paul maybe develops that a little bit more thoroughly in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He said, um, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See, the sense of it is, if, if there wasn't a law, there wouldn't be sin. And if there wasn't sin, there wouldn't be death. But that's not the way the situation is. There is a law. And the Word of God says when you break the law, what happens? A curse comes upon you. And so Paul is talking about it here. And he is saying, you know what? Sin has its power because of the law. And the power of sin to bring about, or rather the power of the law to bring out sin and death is kind of like a batch of fresh-made chocolate chip cookies. Because, you know, uh, if you walk into the house, it doesn't take long before you smell the fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies. And when you smell that, what's the first thing you're going to do? You run to the refrigerator, you grab a gallon of ice-cold milk, You go to the shelf, you pull out a glass, you pour it up, and you make your way to that fresh, hot plate of chocolate chip cookies. And as you're standing before that, you're dreaming about that first bite, washing it down with the ice-cold chocolate chip cookies, all of a sudden, your eyes go right to what? A sign that says, don't eat these cookies. Now, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to eat those cookies. The sense of Paul's talking about the law is not just that it comes with a curse, but the law comes in, and when it says, don't do this, the first impulse of my heart is to say, I want to do that. There is the power of the law, which gives sin its power. The law comes in, and because of the sinfulness of my heart, it makes me now crave and long for the very things that God says, don't do. And so Paul, in a sense, is painting this picture of impossibility, of doom. There's no way we're going to escape this fatal sting of the law because the law comes alongside of us all the time and it's stirring up and invoking and inciting within us a desire to do exactly what God told us not to do. And so all of humanity is caught up in this terrible process of constantly transgressing God's commandment to the point that there is no hope for anybody. You see, I said Paul is talking about victory and we're jumping up and down on the sofa celebrating it. He says, but it's not that simple. 
The law is killing everybody in every generation. It has since the beginning of the world. Because we're always being led into sin. He jolts us. Why does he do that? Because he wants to take you to the joy in verse 57. He wants you to be the kind of believer who is rejoicing. Just as the Apostle Paul explains the whole rationale of sin and death. He then says in verse 57, and this is the note that he wants to hammer. Victory comes. Why? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where Paul wants you to end up. This is where Paul wants you to end up after he has explained the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ for 56 verses. This is where he is leading the Corinthians. This is where he is leading you and I as we have worked our way through this chapter. He is leading us to this point where we rejoice in the cross and in the grave and in the victory of Christ. And he says what the believing response to all of this is, is that we are the kind of people who live a life that is saturated by grace and thanksgiving and adoration and worship of God. It is an impossibility to be a dull, joyless, non-worshipping Christian. Because when you are gripped by the power of the victory of Christ, you can't help but be a thankful, worshiping, joy-filled Christian. You see, the Apostle Paul here is not just trying to straighten out some bad theology. What he is trying to do is, yes, he's trying to do that, but you see, the aim and the goal for the church is what? It's that we're gripped by the truth. That we're changed in our inner being. That we love God and we rejoice in His truth. And we give thanks for His gospel. That's the kind of Christian Paul wants you to be. And so, he shows you this terrible situation we were all in. The law was just killing us over and over and over. And the only way out of that is what? The victory of Jesus Christ. So, in the middle of him leading us to be joyful about the victory, he says, "Hold on! Don't don't leave this uh, don't leave this whole discussion without remembering once again how impossible the gospel is." You know why do you think he did that? Well, here's my take on it, and you can agree or disagree, probably. But when you hear it, you probably think it makes sense. I think the reason why, an additional reason why Paul throws this verse, this verse 56 in to amplify the impossibility of our situation, the impossibility of us ever receiving this transformation, this resurrection body, on account of our sin and the power of the law, I think what he has done here is he's addressing something that's in all of our hearts and minds. We just don't like to talk about it. It's a deep-seated pessimism. All of us, whether we talk about it or not, we're all uh, struggling with, at some measure, a deep-rooted, deep-seated pessimism and cynicism and unbelief about the resurrection. You follow? You know why all of us are? Because we've all been to the cemetery. And one thing we know about visiting the cemetery is, the grave doesn't give up the dead. Who's the last person you buried? It's, it's, a, it, it's sobering because when you go out there and you see all the tombstones, you realize it's not just your loved one. It's everybody. And no one has ever come up. And so we hear these promises and they're too good for us. 
people of God, I, I want you to grab hold of something here. And I believe this is another reason why Paul added verse 56. Because he's realistic. He knows you're struggling. And there's days of, there's times of doubt. Maybe there's times of doubt in the most important moment in life when you need it. When you have lost a friend, when you have lost a loved one, or you're contemplating your own mortality. We want to believe in the victory, but it's hard. Because it's contrary to all of our experience. Well, the wonderful thing that the Apostle Paul has done for us when he moves from verse 56 to verse 57, he says, thanks be to God. We have victory in Jesus Christ. What is he doing? He's grabbing you by the head and he's walking you right back to the cross of Jesus Christ. He says, there's the proof. You know, it seems to me one of the things that is easy for us to hang on to is the cross. It's tangible. It's real. You can't miss the cross. Jesus really was taken out to the hillside and nailed to a cross. Paul says, I want you to hang on to that cross. Because if Jesus died on the cross, it means Jesus submitted to the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. And Jesus bore the curse of the law. And because he did those things, he earned resurrection. People of God, we need to go back to the battlefield over and over again. The battlefield of our redemption. Go back to the cross. Paul says when you're doubting the resurrection or your bodily resurrection, go back to the cross. Because that cross says Jesus kept it all. And Jesus paid it all. And that means we're relieved from this impossibility that Paul spells out in verse 56. Quickly, let's come to the end of the message We've seen transformation, we've seen victory, and now we see admonition. Verse 58, therefore, well, remember the Martin Lloyd-Jones hermeneutical principle. When you come across a therefore, stop and ask what the therefore is there for. I love being redundant. I know you guys are, I think that's corny. I say that all the time, but it's important because what Paul is doing now at the end of this long uh, exhortation and exposition of the resurrection, he said, here's what I want you to do. In view of these great, enormous, huge theological truths, here's what you are called to do. Therefore, two things, Corinthians, you are to be steadfast and immovable. Remember, uh, we said in a couple of sermons ago that the problem with the Corinthians is what? They were coffeehouse intellectuals. They were idea tasters. They enjoyed the speculative conversations. You see... Even though the quest should have been over after they came to Jesus, it wasn't. They were still entertaining what was speculative and mysterious and and over-complicating everything to the point that they had no hard and fast convictions. And that's a danger. Over-intellectualizing things to the point that there is no bedrock of faith to rest on. Paul says to the Corinthians, you need to get some convictions. You need to build your faith on a bedrock. That's precisely what steadfast and immovable means. You are gripped. You are convinced of certain ideas. 
Paul says that to you this morning, people of God. In view of the victory of Christ, the certainty of bodily resurrection, he says, you must be the kind of Christian who have serious, real, deep-seated convictions about the truth. And it's your obligation to claw your way to those. People of God, convictions don't come by casual contact with the truth. Convictions do not come by casual contact with the truth. They are secured through careful meditation, careful reflection, wrestling with the truth, prayerful illumination, asking God to help you believe. You see? And that's the way we're to be. Paul says you're to get them and you're to maintain them so that nobody pushes you off of those. Every person here who claims to be a Christian this morning has to hear this admonition. God is calling you to get solid, rock-solid foundations for your faith. Because the fact of the matter is, the devil's goal is to blow you off of him. And he'll do it in the most sinister ways. People of God, you're called to convictions. God help us to do that. Second of all, in view of this, Paul says... You are to be abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, it's almost 10.15 and I have been not very concise. (laughs) This hasn't really been the soul of wit, which is brevity. This has been long and this point to develop is a long point. So, hold me to it. We need to come back to this idea. But, But let me just give you a few things to think about here for a second. The work of the Lord, what is it? Well, the work of the Lord is this. Because you have been adopted into the family of God, you are invited into the work of the Lord. You are invited to participate in the work of the Lord. You say, well, Pastor Sotel, what's the work of the Lord? And I'm going to get my answer from the careful, deep, rich, theological reflection of Martin Luther, who said the work of the Lord are the masks that God puts on to serve His creation and His creatures. Vocations and the work of the Lord are the masks that God puts on. God is constantly sustaining and preserving His creation and His creatures. And what Luther argues is that God uses us, works through us, to sustain creation and His creatures. This is a huge, marvelous, exhilarating idea because uh, what Luther is arguing, I think it's 100% correct, and he's a lot more unfolding than I can give for it right now, but God is using you as a link in the chain of a whole series of events which ends up with God preserving His people, preserving His creatures, and preserving His creation. This is a big chain. It means... uh, That whatever you're called to do in life, you're a link in the chain. Whatever lawful calling you have in life, you're a link in the chain. Your work as a mother, your work as a father, your work as a teacher, your work as a drywaller, your work as a plumber, your work as a mechanic, your work as a nurse or as a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or a student or any station that you have in life is God working through you to preserve His creation and His creatures. 
Whatever job you have right now, the sense of it is this. You are to abound in that job because that is the work of the Lord. It's even in the job that you don't like. How do you go to work and do a job day after day after day that you are unsatisfied in and you want to leave? Well, here's how you do it. You do it by remembering that God has called you to that work and you are one link in the chain, a massive chain of God providing for His creatures and sustaining His creation. Paul said, whatever station you're in, you are there to abound in it always. You are to overflow always being consumed with the work that God has called you to do. People of God, I know that this is brief and it needs much more, but I hope you see what a huge vision it captures for the Christian life. Wherever you are, in whatever you are doing, you are wearing a mask which conceals behind your work God coming alongside you, working through you to preserve and to serve and to maintain His creatures and His creation. In view of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in view of the future resurrection, Paul is saying as we walk away from 1 Corinthians 15, your life matters. Every single day you wake up and are given something to do by God, your life matters. No matter how mundane, no matter how trivial, whatever it is, when you're serving the Lord in a lawful calling, your life matters. And as you do that, with your whole heart, you're expressing your hope in the resurrection, you're honoring God and His truth, and you are living a life that counts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the richness of your word.